Good morning. Jesus is risen. Indeed, he is. Well, this morning we continue in the book of Acts, becoming the church, stories of the first Jesus people. We're in chapter 9. We'll be looking at the conversion of, uh, of Saul. I, I need to say right off the bat, I tend to always say Paul. And of course, at this point, his name was Saul. He later changed his name to Paul. So if I kind of go back and forth there and I'm a little out of uh, chronological order, please forgive me for that. If you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. I'd like to read all the way through 31, but I'm just going to read verses 1 through 19. I hope you've had a chance to spend some time in Acts 9. We'll be referring to all 31 verses. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house. 
And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he arose and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Paul, and I mean Paul, is the only Pharisee who has left us any personal writings. The only Pharisee who has left us any personal writings. And reading his letters, it's hard. It's nearly impossible to imagine the Pharisee and to imagine the persecutor of the first Jesus people. This is how he concludes one of his personal letters to Jesus' people in Corinth. I, Paul, send this greeting with my own hand. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. That is a phenomenal turn of events that that reflects between Saul, the man who breathed threats and doggedly pursued the first Jesus people, arresting them, flogging them. In some cases, it would appear to the point of death. And now he, he breathes love in Christ Jesus, whom he calls Lord. It's pretty phenomenal. Not something we, we ponder, but it is worth reflecting upon. Ben Witherington on chapter 9 of Acts writes, without question, the story of Saul's conversion is one of the most important events, if not the most important event that Luke records in the book of Acts. Luke, the writer of Acts, the writer of the gospel by the same name, Luke. Luke was the companion of Paul. And that's reflected in the we sections of the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 16 and continuing. Luke gives three full treatments in the book of Acts to Saul's conversion, here in chapter 9, in chapter 22, and in chapter 26. In chapter 22 and 26, we have first-person accounts in which Paul speaks for himself. He gives his personal testimony to those events. So when I say first-person, I mean Paul uses the personal pronoun I and speaks of his own experience. But here in chapter 9, we have a third-person account. Luke uses the third personal pronoun, he. And so we have this indirect accounting here of what happened. 
Now, Paul's testimonies in chapter 22 and 26 are very, very different. I mean, the same in the essentials of what happened, but different in the orientation because in chapter 22, Paul has been arrested. He's in the temple of Jerusalem, and he is speaking to his fellow people. He's speaking to Jews. He's speaking to people who were adherents to Judaism, proselytes, converts, and natural Jews born to this faith. They knew the word. They knew the scriptures. They knew by experience so much of what Paul was was referring to. They shared that, that deep common bond. But in Acts 26, Paul's speaking to King Agrippa, who has uh, given this audience to Paul at the behest of the procurator of Rome, Festus, who's also in attendance, and it's probable that Luke is in attendance too. In chapter 26, Paul speaks in Greek. In chapter 22, he speaks in what's called the Hebrew dialect, as Luke tells us. And I mention that Because when Paul, in chapter 22, speaks and shares his personal testimony to them of what happened on the road to Damascus as he was breathing out threats against the first people, the first followers of Jesus, this uh, incredible light and this incredible experience transpired in which Jesus encountered, uh, Paul, Saul, encountered Jesus alive. And when Paul talks about it to the Jews in the Hebrew dialect, he speaks to the Jews in the temple, as I said after his arrest, to Jews who would get it. And he says, and I quote in verse 11, I could not stare because the glory of that light. In other words, I could not gaze at it because of the glory of that light, which is technical language for I beheld the glory of the Lord. In Ezekiel, the calling of Ezekiel In chapter 1, the entire chapter is given to Ezekiel's description of a vision. And this is how it concludes. Uh, He says, I saw visions of God. And then in verse 28, he says, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, the kavod Adonai, And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now, Paul's experience is more than a vision, more than the likeness of the glory of the Lord as Ezekiel describes it. Saul saw the glory of the Lord, but the It was the blinding glory of the raised, exalted, and glorified Jesus. The light of his glory. Brighter than the midday sun, which is a detail that 
is given in both of the other accounts. The sun was high in the sky and brighter than the sun is the glory of Jesus Christ. Not even the other apostles saw Jesus exalted and glorified. Between his resurrection and Pentecost, and it was at that very festival, 50 days after Jesus was raised, three days after the Passover, it was on that very occasion that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon his people, upon the church. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit was evidence that Jesus had been exalted and resurrected. Acts chapter 1 tells us of his ascension, and he yet tells the disciples, wait for the Holy Spirit, because when he is exalted to the right hand of the Father, where at the end of chapter 7, when Stephen is being stoned and about to give up his life for his testimony to this very truth that Jesus is raised from the dead, and he's not just a man raised, he is Jesus Christ raised and exalted as Lord. And Stephen sees the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father. This is radical stuff to the Jews that anyone should be so elevated in the presence of God. And so I, I just, it's so important that you appreciate this experience of Paul because the other disciples experienced in person, firsthand, Jesus raised, but not ascended, not exalted, not glorified. The Holy Spirit had not been poured out. This was his station as the resurrected one. But in that period between his resurrection and Pentecost, they experienced Jesus, but not ascended and glorified. That's what Paul encountered. And that's why Paul alone convinces us not just of the resurrection of the believer, but the glory and power of the believer resurrected. In 1 Corinthians 15, 43, Paul says, the body is sown dishonorable or lowly in humiliation, raised in glory. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, he says that our bodies will be transformed and conformed to the body of glory. Those are his exact words. The body of, glo of glory of Jesus Christ. Paul's heart was seared with the indelible image of Jesus in his glory. 
In one of his personal letters, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, he speaks about the glory of, of Moses after his audience with the Lord himself in the receiving of the law. And as he returned to his people, the glory radiated on his face and he had to have a, a veil over his face. But this does not compare, Paul says, with the glory of the gospel which is a remarkable thing because the gospel is the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says this remarkable thing, He's, he writes of it and he says, the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ who is the image of God. Where did that come from? It didn't just come from his rumination and imagination. It came from his Damascus experience. I mean, think about this. His letters breathe the glory that he saw that blinded him on that occasion in a way that it doesn't even characterize the writings of the rest of the New Testament. I speak of the glory of the Lord, but it's a distant realization to me. Paul understands so much about who we are and who we will be because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he even speaks of his glory being ours. That's phenomenal to me. And in verse 6, Paul says, of that same chapter, chapter 4, he says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. In other words, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, in the creation, when God said, let there be light, this same God, our Creator, the Lord of lords and God of all, is the one, he goes on to say, who shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You seem actually way too casual about this. This rocked my world. I had never actually seen that as clearly this week as, a, as at any other time. It, it stirs my soul. It stirs me personally to have this personal touch to the experience of the resurrected Christ from one to me who is a bona fide, authentic witness, if ever there was one, because I can't imagine anything that would convert this man. This man named Saul, whose life, whose zeal for the Lord, of, the Lord God that he loved and served was given to annihilating the name of Jesus Christ. Saul saw the light, the glory of Jesus, and the glory of his people, the Jesus people. 
Here we see the reversal, the revolution, and revelation that Paul experienced. And we see that right here in chapter 9. We see Jesus glorified and how it reversed Saul. This was a stunning reversal considering Saul's reputation for persecuting the Jesus people as well as the disciples and their belief that he wanted to squash and uproot and eradicate. We see his persecution throughout this chapter, but what I'm also interested in adding to our understanding of what we read right here is what Paul tells us in his own words. In his letter to the Galatians, the first chapter, the 13th verse, he confessed, I savagely persecuted God's church and was trying to annihilate it. Saul was not a soldier dutifully following human orders. He was personally fired up by his own zeal for the higher rank of God and defending his honor and glory. In his own testimony before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 9, Paul stated, it was my inner conviction. In other words, the very thought of my heart. And he says, I must do all I can to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what was driving him. In a sense, it was like he was personally possessed to defend God. To go after these who blasphemed God by elevating Jesus Christ. By calling him the Messiah by worshiping him. I don't even think we can begin to appreciate that because we love Jesus. We personalize what he did for us. But to the Jews, this was, this was just lunacy. And Paul was so struck by this, so I mean, think it through. Ponder it a bit. He wasn't commanded. He was a voracious, eager comer for God who went to the priest and said, I'm signing up. Draw on your patriotism for your country. You who think you would say, I'm going for my country. I can remember from personal testimonies of others, young men not even eligible for war signed up, volunteered to lay down their lives for their country. Saul was like that. And his conversion was inconceivable to Jesus' people. So fierce was his campaign. Luke records in chapter 9, right here, verse 31. 
after his conversion, the disciples in Judea, where the temple was situated and located, in Judea, and then in Samaria, north of Judea, and then in Galilee, all of the Jesus people, the disciples of Jesus, enjoyed peace. And that peace is described as fearing God and enjoying the comfort and encouragement of God's Spirit. Now, why is that? I mean, why would you say they enjoyed peace and they feared the Lord God? Here's why I think. I think they had feared Saul so much that it competed with the lordship, the practical lordship of God in their lives. I think at times when we are, we are that frightened, it's hard to believe that God is going to do something. We pray. Save, what do you think they were praying? What do you think the Jesus people were praying when word reached them that Saul and his persecution was reaching 150 miles north to the synagogues in Damascus? And the synagogues is where you would find the first Jesus people because they were worshiping the same God. They were eager to share the news of what God had done in Jesus Christ with their fellow Jews. And Paul's on his way, and I think think the Christians were praying like I would pray. Lord, protect us. Watch over us. Keep us safe. Somehow, bar Paul, Saul from coming here from getting to us. Protect those, you know, protect the pastor or protect the most notable among us. But I wonder if their prayers had room for the reality of God in their lives during that time in a sense that maybe God is greater than the persecutor. You know, in the Old Testament, the fear of God and the fear of men is constantly compared and contrasted. And we're often urged and reminded, don't fear men. Don't put your faith in human things. Trust God. Put your faith in Him. It's really fascinating that in Acts chapter 12, and we'll be there in a few weeks, but in Acts chapter 12, Herod, has killed James, the brother of John. I mean, this thing's getting really close now. And they've arrested Peter. And they fear for Peter's life. And we're told that the Christians are are praying earnestly and fervently for Peter. And I'm sure they're praying for his protection and even maybe praying that somehow God might deliver him, release him. Well, while they are so fervently praying, 
Peter comes to the door because an angel has released him and he knocks on the door and a young girl answers the door and sees Peter. She's so floored, she leaves him standing at the door and returns to those Christians who are on their knees praying and says, Peter's at the door. And do you know what they say? You're out of your mind. Sometimes fear shuts off the reality of a God who can work in ways that cause others to think, you're out of your mind. Is the future open? I mean this very, very seriously. Is your future open in a way? And by open, I mean can God really move in your life in ways that are not already determined and limited by your past experience? Do you, I love to say, expect great things from God. It's interesting in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, in another one of Paul's, this Pharisee's personal letters, He says, don't be anxious for anything. But in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, there it is, with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto the Lord. And the peace of God will guard your hearts. And the picture there is of a a sentry, a guard being stationed at your heart. That we might know peace, which what? Passes understanding. Which defies human understanding. Which baffles even us. That is an expectancy that truly allows God to be God in our lives. When I was uh, thinking about this yesterday, I wrote down... Do we play with a deck of cards? A deck without wild cards? You you ever played cards with a 52 card deck? What happens when you throw in wild cards? It changes up everything. I think sometimes as Christians, we extol the resurrection, but, but we, li- we play with a deck of cards that has no wild cards in it. That's a deck of cause and effect. That's, that's a scientific deck. You know, science which has no way to possibly measure or explain the existence of God. And we live in such a science-driven world, which I truly appreciate. But sometimes we who have been touched by this very resurrection live as though there are no wild cards in life, as though God is is somehow banned from our, our lives by the laws of nature which he himself created. 
And when it comes to the resurrection, it's an artifact of history and not an experience of our lives day in and day out. That's what Paul did pray about. That is something Paul did experience. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ, and it has a name, the Holy Spirit. God gave you his Holy Spirit because Jesus has been raised and exalted and he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he has poured himself out on you that you might know his resurrection power. And yet we live and play with a deck of cards as though there are no wild cards in it. This was an incredible reversal Seeing Jesus glorified reversed Saul, and it revolutionized Saul. Seeing Jesus glorified altered Saul's reality, turning his world upside down. It confirmed everything Saul had been taught, and it overturned everything he'd been taught. The law and the prophets had come true in what he experienced, what he encountered in the risen glorified Jesus. And likewise, the law and the prophets had been torn to pieces and put back together in a totally new way. It showed him that the God he had been right to serve, right to study, right to seek in prayer, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had done what he had always said he would do, but had done it in a shocking, scandalous, horrifying way. The God who had always promised to come and rescue his people had done so in person. And it was the person Saul persecuted. And it turned his world upside down. I know you remember Chuck Colson, Nixon's hatchet man. He came to Christ, but he reflects on his internal turmoil before he received Jesus as his Lord. And these are his words. Was Christ to change my view of life so drastically? My mind was whirling. Deep down I knew forces were at work demanding I rethink every facet of my life. I could not sidestep the central question placed squarely before me. Was I to accept without reservation Jesus Christ as Lord of my life? I think that gives us a little insight into what Saul was thinking about and contemplating for three days when he took no food or water. He was fasting and, we are told, praying. And he was wrestling with what he had seen. Psychologists talk about cognitive dissonance, that uh, we can really go into a, a tailspin of justification and rationalization when we are confronted with an opposing idea or thought that counters something we deeply, deeply believe. So, for example, uh, if you are led into a cult that says that when a 
shooting star crosses the sky, you're all going to be lifted into the air as you await its passing in the dark, in the middle of the desert, after you have, you have sold everything that you own and said goodbye to everyone that you love, and this is going to happen on this specific date, and there you are looking up at the stars, and the shooting star goes over, and you're still standing there in the desert after having said goodbye to all of your family, and you have no home to go to because you've sold everything. You've banked everything on this. And psychologists can predict what you'll do. You'll rationalize it and become even more zealous and fervent in your belief. But that's not what Paul did. He didn't rationalize it away. He didn't return more zealous because he saw the reality of the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to speak about, and we see this in verse 20 and in verse 22 and 27. He starts telling others he begins to proclaim what he persecuted. And he declares and preaches and proclaims Jesus is the Son of God. Familiar words to us. The only time in Acts Son of God is used and music plays at the same time (laughs) is Acts right here, chapter 9, verse 20. And that's significant because in Paul's letters when he talks in his own words, in his own personal correspondence, he talks about how God was merciful and gracious to him and allowed him to see Jesus, the Son of God. What's ironic is that the chief priest repudiated that claim and tore his robes when Jesus on trial was asked, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus began to speak about the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory with his angels. And that set the high priest off because he knew Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. Paul is trying to stamp that out and now he's proclaiming to those who he had persecuted and those who he had shared the beliefs of for so many years, Jesus is the Son of God. This is a revolution of incredible, inestimable proportion.
seeing Jesus glorified, revealed to Saul, glorious truth. In his letters, repeatedly uses the term glory to refer to Jesus Christ. In Philippians 3.21, I mentioned that Paul speaks of Christ's body of glory, to which the believer's body is to be conformed. He calls Christ the Lord of glory. Through the glory of the Father, he says, Christ was raised from the dead. Romans 6, 4, God makes known the riches of glory through the exalted Christ. Romans 9, 23, Philippians 4, 19, and more. The gospel that Paul proclaims, the news of Jesus' death, resurrection, and return is called the gospel of glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 1 Timothy 1, 11, Colossians 1, 27. In 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 4, 6, Paul describes his own conversion. He describes the glory of the Lord and expresses it as a pattern for believers. As an heir of Christ, Paul says we are going to share in the glory of Christ, Romans 8, 17. A glory so glorious that it eclipses any suffering we may experience in this life. In Colossians 3, 4, he says that at the coming of Jesus, we will exchange suffering for glory. We will be changed and transformed into the image of Christ. Most of us, I think it's true that most or all of what we know about the world is told to us. We accept so much on the word of others. And strangely, some things we don't. Because it doesn't fit our experience. There was a, a man, his Italian mother named him after the gospel writer Mark in the hopes that he would tell the gospel truth. But the 13th century Europeans found it impossible to believe Mark's tales of faraway lands. He claimed that when he was only 17, he took an epic journey lasting a quarter of a century taking him across the steppes of Russia, the rugged mountains of Afghanistan, the wastelands of Persia, and over the top of the world through the Himalaya. He was the first European to enter China. And through an amazing set of circumstances, he became a favorite of the most powerful ruler on planet Earth, the Kublai Khan. Mark saw cities that made European capitals look like roadside villages. The Khan's palace dwarfed the largest castles and cathedrals in Europe. It was so massive that its banquet room alone could seat 6,000 diners at one time, each eating on a plate of pure gold. Mark saw the world's first paper money and marveled at the explosive power of gunpowder. It would be the 18th century before Europe would manufacture as much steel as China was producing in the year 1267. Mark became the first Italian to taste that Chinese culinary invention, pasta. As an officer of the Khan's court, Mark traveled to places no European would see for another 500 years. And after serving the Kublai Khan for 17 years, Mark began his journey home to Venice, loaded down with gold, silk, 
and spices. When he arrived at home, people dismissed his stories of a mythical place called China. His family priest rebuked him for spinning lies. At his deathbed, his family, friends, and priests begged him to recant his tales of China. And as it were, setting his jaw and gasping for breath, Mark spoke his final words, I have not even told you half of what I saw. 1,300 years before Marco Polo told what he saw in China, another man, Saul, set out on a 150-mile journey to a place called Damascus. And what he saw, glorious beyond words, the, the very glory of Jesus Christ gave rise to a similar claim. What no eye has seen what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, God has prepared for those who love Him. Do you know that He loves you? you stand with me? He loves you with a love you'll only fathom if you understand who He is and what He offers to you. We don't have to have an experience like Paul's. In fact, Paul says, He who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts the light of the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, as we, uh, as we close, I'm going to stand down here and elders and uh, their wives, those present, are going to join me. If you would like to talk to us, what does it mean, you ask, to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of my life? We'll answer that question for you from God's own word. Maybe this morning, as we're so prone to do in our humanness, we pray, but given what we've looked at this morning, you're thinking, maybe I need to pray and be more open to what God wants to do in my life and in my future, and you'd like to pray with us, not just limited by your past, but open to the God who gives us a deck with wild cards because he is a great God who is interested in serving and working in our lives. If, if you want to pray for yourself or intercede on behalf of someone else, we invite you to come. Let me close in prayer for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, it may seem a simple thing that we pray to you, but you are present. We are in your presence. And that is awesome. We are sometimes cavalier and way casual because you have given us this freedom in Jesus Christ to call you Father. And we thank you for it. And we love you, Lord. And we praise you on this day in which we remember what you have done for us in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And we glorify you in Jesus' matchless name. 
And all God's people said, Amen. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.